Welcome to Thunder Off Script, a podcast for lovers of freedom. It's Sunday, 27th of March, 2022. In today's episode, I'd like to briefly discuss the critical need for a public COVID inquiry and the two fronts in the battle for freedom. First, a quick reminder that you can find all my latest posts at davidthunder.substack.com. You can also support my work in defense of a free and open society by taking out a monthly or annual subscription. As the dust settles from this pandemic, it'll be tempting to just sort of get on with life and get back to normal and just breathe a sigh of relief. But the reality is that there have been many long-term damages inflicted by poor decision-making during this pandemic, by what was fundamentally a dramatic overreaction to the pandemic on the part of political leaders and public officials and some public health scientists. Whatever your views may be, your particular views may be about the public policy response to the pandemic, the response was dramatic and it did involve a recalibration of our way of life for two years. So it is incumbent upon governments now to carry out public inquiries in order to learn from our mistakes and, and of course, to learn from what went right in our response to COVID-19. There are two basic reasons why every country needs a public COVID inquiry. First, so that we can learn from the successes and failures of the past. And second, so that public officials can answer for their mistakes and be held accountable. But an inquiry will only work if two conditions are met. First, its brief must be sufficiently wide to capture a wide range of relevant actors and consequences, and thus get a broad picture of what went right and wrong. It will not be sufficient to simply investigate, for example, the medical consequences of interventions. Whatever inquiry is set up must also investigate the social cultural and economic consequences of the interventions. Similarly, the inquiry should not be restricted to public actors who acted directly on behalf of governments. The inquiry should also include a consideration of major private actors that acted in partnership with governments, such as the pharmaceutical companies Second, it must be run by individuals of recognized competence, experience, and integrity who do not have any clear conflicts of interest. For example, their reputation should not be at stake for the handling of the pandemic, nor should their economic interests be affected in in any obvious way by the outcome of the inquiry. I haven't yet done any exhaustive search to find out which countries have undertaken a public COVID inquiry, but 
thankfully, at least one country, the United Kingdom, has set up a COVID inquiry. This inquiry will be chaired by the Right Honourable Baroness Heather Hallett. I'd like to quote from the terms that are set out on the website of this public inquiry, and it goes like this, quote, an independent public inquiry to examine the UK's preparedness and response to the COVID-19 pandemic and to learn lessons for the future. The inquiry has been established, again, I'm reading from the website, under the Inquiries Act 2005. This means that the chair will have the power to compel the production of documents and call witnesses to give evidence on oath, unquote. The public consultation will close on 7th of April 2022 at 11.59pm. I will include a link to the inquiry's webpage below this podcast. Whatever country you live in, I encourage you to press your political representatives to set up a COVID inquiry as soon as possible. Now, the second issue that I wanted to address today is the two fronts in the battle for freedom. There are two fronts in this battle. The first front is representative democracy. By this I mean lobbying political representatives to persuade them to make legal and policy reforms on our behalf. This is a very conventional and very well-recognized method for a method of reform. And in a way, it's so obvious because of the prominence of our democratic institutions that it's not something I need to labor too much, the value of this kind of activity. Sometimes it involves directly lobbying politicians. Sometimes it involves persuading the public at large to change their opinion or to adopt our opinion and therefore indirectly to persuade our political representatives to adopt our favorite cause. This method of political reform is extremely important because our political institutions and laws condition our life in fundamental ways. They set the ground rules, so to speak, and they also limit the powers of government, which is critical, of course, because governments do wield so much power. The second front in the battle for freedom is what I call direct action. And what I mean by this is the creation and maintenance of pro-flourishing, pro-freedom social structures and activities. This is often referred to as civil society, but in reality I have in mind economic entrepreneurship as well, provided it is oriented to community goods and not just its own profit. Now, these two fronts, namely representative democracy and direct action within civil society, are closely intertwined. Representative democracy is necessary to protect the legal and political conditions that favour a free and vibrant civil society. Direct action is necessary to build up civil society and economic institutions that can help citizens achieve their ends at a local level rather than simply depending on one-size-fits-all institutions of the state. Let me give you some examples of what I mean by direct action 
or the institutions within which direct action can occur. One example is the setting up and running of a parent-based primary or secondary school. Another is a tennis club, a university, a community-based business, a coffee shop with roots in the community, a centre of culture and art, an athletic club, Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts, a charitable organisation like Caritas that attends to the poor and disadvantaged, a soup kitchen, an online course on civic engagement, a prayer group in a local church, a community of readers and commentators on a free speech platform like Substack, which is the present platform I'm using, and the list could go on and on. I leave it to my listeners' imagination to think of civil society institutions that either already exist or could come into existence that they are involved in or could help to set up. What do these sorts of organizations offer that a purely state-centered society cannot offer? Well, first of all, they offer local knowledge because they're rooted in the community and therefore they have privileged access to local knowledge. They know about local needs, they know about local sensibilities, they, lo- they know about local tensions, so they have that kind of sensitivity and prudence that a state-based actor may not have. Second, the leaders and managers of civil society institutions, insofar as they have roots in the community, are motivated to serve its needs because it is, after all, their community, their people, so to speak. Third, civil society institutions, because they tend to be smaller and more informal and less bound by bureaucratic restrictions, have the ability to adapt to changing circumstances and to people's evolving needs relatively quickly and dynamically. Imagine trying to reform an entire welfare state to adapt to a new technology, for example, and compare compare this to what might be required for a small charity to adapt its procedures. A fourth advantage of civil society institutions over state-based institutions is that they operate on a human scale, and this means that they're sufficiently small for those involved to be treated as persons and not just numbers. And as anyone who has had dealings with either large companies or large bureaucracies can attest, the human touch, the ability to exercise prudence and to take into consideration the circumstances of each individual is something to be greatly appreciated. So there are two main take-home points from this podcast. The first is that we desperately need competent, professional, and impartial public inquiries to investigate the handling of the COVID pandemic. And these inquiries should be carried out by national governments, and they should be carried out by all national governments. And second, we should continue to fight for freedom and to defend our civil liberties and restore them if necessary. But we shouldn't forget that this fight has to occur on two fronts. The first front, which is the most familiar one in a way, is to engage 
directly with representative democracy and with our political institutions so that they will enact laws and policies that are friendly to citizens' interests and liberties. The second level, or the second um, front of this battle for freedom, is direct action. And by that I mean direct engagement within civil society, the building and maintenance of civil society institutions on their own terms that can promote human flourishing, that can service human needs and interests, and can also serve as a buffer between the state and the individual. Thanks for tuning in to Thunder Off Script. Stay tuned for our next episode.